Please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2. The text of the sermon is verses 4 through 14. Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that God, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and Omic stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. how we are different from animals. 
and that we are created in the image of God to love Him, to know Him, and to live in covenant relationship and fellowship with Him. Before we get into the text, I'd like to say a couple of things about chapter divisions and the character of Genesis chapter 2. The ancient manuscripts, both in Hebrew and Greek, never had chapter divisions or verse divisions. In fact, ancient manuscripts never had punctuation, capital letters, and in most cases, they didn't even have spaces between the words. The chapter and verse divisions were first introduced around A.D. 1227, and the Wycliffe English Bible translation of 1382 was the first Bible to use this pattern. So the Bible chapters and verses are not inspired. And this pattern is not always helpful, and one example of this is in Genesis chapter 2, the chapter really should begin in verse 4 of chapter 2, with the phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Because this chapter introduces what is, in many aspects, a repetition of sections of Genesis 1. And if you read through it, you might think that it's even contradicting chapter 1. So we have to read it carefully. But what we have here in chapter 2 is an expansion of day 6 of creation and most particularly, an expanded description of the creation of man. This account is about how man was formed, where God placed him, what God provided him with, what he was called to do, how he was given a helper to accomplish the task that God had given him. So in sum, Genesis 2 then makes it clear that God made a covenant with man in the Garden of Eden. Congregation, this covenant defines our relationship to God, it defines our value and our worth, and it defines our purpose on earth. This covenant defines our relationship to God, it defines our value and our worth, and our purpose on earth. So first of all, God created us to relate to Him. That's revealed in the text in the first place with the name Lord God. We learn from Genesis 1 that the English word God is a translation of the Hebrew Elohim. That's a plural word that expresses the notion that God is infinitely great and infinitely powerful. He is the highest being to be feared and worshipped. And now the Bible adds God's covenant name to Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. It's used about 20 times in chapters 2 and 3. And by adding Yahweh to Elohim, the Bible shows us that the same God who created the heavens and the earth is the God who walked with man in the Garden of Eden, who punished him for his disobedience and gave him a promise of a Savior and a promise of victory over Satan. Yahweh is God's personal name which he used to introduce himself. As the covenant God of Israel. That's how he introduced himself, for example, to Moses at the burning bush. That's how he introduces himself in the preamble to the law. I am the Lord your God. So this name of God adds emphasis to the fact that God is not far from us. The Creator is not a God who made man and just put him in a fucking down in a garden pot and then left him to himself. The Garden of Eden was a place where God walked and talked with Adam. You can see from Genesis 3, verse 8. The Garden of Eden is a place where God communed with man. 
could meet his God. You could say it was the first tabernacle on earth, planted there by God himself, so that man had a place of worship, a place of intimate fellowship with his creator. And the name Eden means delight. God placed Adam in the garden of delight. And this means, first of all, that man could delight there in his relationship with the Lord God. Again, God is not far from or remote from what he has created. By his very act of creation, God binds himself to the relationship that he has with man. Great relationship of love and delight. And then God gives man a task on earth. The Lord gave man instructions to guard or to keep the garden. And he was instructed to beware of that one tree and to care for the garden. He has to care for what God has made. And all of this congregation indicates that the Garden of Eden is a place for man to dwell in holy communion with his Creator, with the Lord God. From the very beginning, the Lord desires to have an intimate relationship, a loving relationship with Adam and Eve. So Adam wasn't put in the garden just to live there. He wasn't given this place of, of delight just for his own pleasure. He was created for communion with God, and he received this garden so that he could do so to the best of his ability. What our nation is that what we desire as well. Because life is about more than just living on this earth. And life is about more than living well. And life is about more than living forever. To be truly alive is to have communion with God. That means more than to know Him or know about Him, it means to walk with God as Adam did. And the way to walk with God is to get to know Him, and that means that we need to listen to Him. And that means being busy in His Word. The only way to know God intimately is to listen to what He has to say to us. And we find that in His Word. That's where we learn how much He cares for us, how much He loves us. That's where we learn who He is, and who Jesus is, and who we are in relation to Him. And Genesis 2 teaches us that the Lord wants us to have that kind of relationship with our Creator. But it also teaches us that He values us highly. We're told in verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We have a picture here of a potter taking clay and carefully molding it into the shape that he desired. And the term living being is also used of the animals, but only here are we told that God breathed directly into the face of man. God himself infused life into man. He infused something of himself into man and gives us the breath of life. That's worth meditating on. Isn't it? As 
God formed Adam, he was just clay, lifeless, born from the dust, senseless, <coughs> non-functioning, and then God breathes into him the breath of life. So you can see that God is taking time and care in forming and creating Adam. He could have created Adam by the word of his mouth like he did everything else. But the text clearly indicates that God took extra care and extra time to form man. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Lord doesn't just do that with Adam, he does that with us too. Psalm 139 declares that we are individually, each one of us, intricately formed and fashioned in the womb of our mother. Each one of us. Still today, God takes special care of us already from the moment that we are conceived. Each single one of us is designed by the genius of God with care and attention. That's why life is precious. And each individual person is a person of value. That means that God didn't make a mistake about the color of your hair, or about how tall you are, or how short you are, or what gender you were born in. God takes time to form and fashion you. Yes, we are physically and emotionally and mentally affected by sin, but that does not override God's care in creating and forming you in your mother's womb. The Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, he forms us from the dust of the earth, and his breath turns us into a living being. And that means that life has relevance. Your life has relevance. It has meaning. It has value. culture today urges us to find meaning in ourselves. Look inside yourself. Find yourself. Find the divine within you. Find meaning in your abilities. Find meaning in how you look. Find meaning in living life to the fullest. We're told today our value lies in success according to the world's standards. We're told that we need self-esteem in order to be happy. And so the answer to self-esteem is or to low self-esteem is have pride in yourself. Take pride in yourself. Think highly of yourself. Think of yourself as important. But the scripture tells us something very different. The Bible tells us that our value and our worth comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from God. Of ourselves, we're just a pile of dust. The Lord God makes us into a living being. He has made us in his image. Both male and female are created in his image. And so you are precious in his sight. Brothers and sisters, no one can take that away from you. So what's the answer to gender confusion, low self-esteem? What's the answer to having a lack of purpose in life, living without hope for the future? But well, the answer lies in knowing the Lord God who gives you life. The answer lies outside of yourself. The more you glorify Him, the more you esteem His Word, the more you understand who He is. 
so much more will you know that it is his care and his life and his breath that gives you God. You are God's handiwork. You are precious in his sight. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, <clears throat> and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Or in chapter 10 of Matthew, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? Even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of far more value than many sparrows. And this same Lord Jesus shows us how much the Father loves us. Because God gave His dearly beloved Son for our sins. Romans 5, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 8, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So what should we say in answer to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who is there to tell us that we are of no value? If God is for you, then who is there to tell you that you are not precious in His sight? God has invested so much care and so much love in us. That's what makes you precious to Him. You are as precious to Him as the wife of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And yes, we're made from dust. And to dust we will return. And why is it good to be reminded of that congregation? Well, that's so that we don't become filled with pride in ourselves. We are just dust in ourselves. <clears throat> so we should not seek value in ourselves. Yes, we're made from the dust, but the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, he gives value to that dust by breathing into it the breath of life, by fashioning us and forming us, and in Christ, making us more precious to him than ever. But there's even more evidence in Genesis of God's care for us, and that evidence is found in how God made a place for Adam to live. Here again, take note of how much care and attention the Lord gives to this garden. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So again, God didn't just put man on earth and then lead him to his own devices and say, you don't have to build yourself a home. No, God prepared a place for man to live. God took the time to make a garden of delight for Adam and Eve. And this was no run of the mill garden. It was embellished with a great variety of trees and all kinds of extraordinary gifts. It was filled with fruit trees, plenty of food. And so we should think of it as a beautifully laid out park or a botanical garden. In fact, you could call it a royal garden. Adam, after all, was the appointed king over God's creation. This is the kind of park that a, that a king, a wealthy king, would lay out around his palace grounds to enhance those grounds. And so this was man's first home, a fitting home for the crown prince of creation, a home that gave Adam everything he needed. For 
out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God supplied Adam with food and drink and everything he needed to sustain his life and to do his work to continue his task of subduing the earth. But it was much more than just a beautiful garden or a functional garden. God created it so that it was pleasing to the eye. God created the garden as a place for man to delight in. And Adam's task was to expand this garden of delight in the rest of the world. And congregation, that tells us something about our work, doesn't it, and our task on earth. It was Adam's task to cultivate the ground, to plant shrubs and flowers, the kinds of plants that are mentioned in chapter 2, verse 5. And Adam was to expand the beauty of Eden into the rest of the world. It's also very significant that we are told in the following verses that the world around the Garden of Delight contained contain things like gold and precious stones. We read that in verses 10 and following. In the land of Havilah, where there was gold, and the gold of that land is good, Gilliam and Onyx stone are there. That's very significant. Man's task was to use everything that God created to develop and expand the Garden of Eden. So that meant that part of man's task literally was to dig in the ground to find the gold and the precious stone. Man is supposed to be digging for gold and iron and copper and precious stones. Man is supposed to be developing technology and use it to develop the garden. Again, it's not merely a functional garden, but a garden of delight, a place of order and beauty, more than just a place to work and eat and sleep. From the beginning, God created beauty and order in his creation so that we would come to know something of the beauty and majesty of God and so that through our work we would reflect that as well. So that also tells us something about how we ought to do work. Adam's task was to spread the beauty of the garden, to spread that reflection of God's glory and beauty. And so that task, then, congregation, that task is an act of worship. And if our work is to be an act of worship, shouldn't that influence how we do our work and with what attitude we face our work each day? If work is an act of worship, we ought to take great delight in discovering new things, in building new things, in making things beautiful. If work is an act of worship, we ought to take great delight in orderliness and neatness and beauty and work hard to get rid of chaos and messiness and ugliness. It is an act of worship for a scientist to conduct experiments. It is an act of worship for a mathematician to solve problems. It is an act of worship for an architect to design buildings that are aesthetically pleasing to the eye. It is an act of worship for the farmer to take good care of his animals, for the mother in the home to do her laundry. And boys and girls, it is an act of worship for you to keep your room neat and tidy. 
live and work this way in congregation because God is a God of order and beauty. And we care for his creation because he cares for it. And that also includes caring for ourselves. It is an act of worship to take good care of yourself. Not to worship yourself, but to care for yourself. God cares for you, formed and fashioned you. Jesus Christ died for you. So it is an act of worship to care for that person, for yourself. So we work and strive not to make a name for ourselves, not to make a good life for ourselves, not just to exist, but to worship God and to please Him. We work because work is an act of worship meant to glorify God. Today we can see beauty and order and creation all around us. We can take great delight in that beauty in the intricacies of God's creation. We can take great delight in discovering new things, new ways of doing things. And the Lord has given us everything that we need to fulfill this task, to fulfill the creation mandate to cultivate and subdue the earth. And yes, sin has greatly reduced that delight. Sin has made things difficult for us to fulfill that task. There's thorns and thistles, and it takes sweat, and sometimes blood and tears to do our work. And yet, congregation God takes delight in the work of our hands. And in Christ, our work is being redeemed for God's purposes and for His plan of salvation. It's all part of that plan. Which is why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's never think that our work is of no value or no benefit. In Christ, God redeems our work and our labor, and he accepts it as an act of worship that glorifies his name. Someday when Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, he will take us with him onto the new heavens and the new earth where we can do this in perfection. And there is something in the text of Genesis chapter 2 that already points to that. The text tells us that God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. In addition, we're told a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Now, one of the difficulties with the description that we find in verses 10 to 14 is that this describes a world that no living person today has ever seen. This describes the world before the great flood of Noah. So there's no river today that anyone can point to and say, this is the Pishon River, and the same is true with the Gaihan River. Furthermore, the text tells us that there was one river flowing from Eden, dividing into four rivers. And even this doesn't help us much, for today the Tigris and the Euphrates River are not one river that splits into two, let alone four. So we might wonder what's the point of this description if we can't use it today to pinpoint the location of the Garden of Eden. Because clearly this garden was a real place. The foundation, the purpose of the text is not to tell us where to find this garden, because if that were the case, the Lord would have made it clear. So let's look carefully at what the text does say. Careful examination of the passage tells us that there is a place or a land 
called Edom. And in this land, or right next to this land, God planted the Garden of Eden. That's like saying there's a Garden of Ontario in the province of Ontario. Something like that. And the river that waters the Garden of Eden has its source from outside of the Garden in Eden, where it flows into the Garden. And there, in the Garden, or near the Garden, or as it flows out of the Garden, it divides into four rivers. So the source of the water in the Garden of Eden is found outside of the garden. And that is significant. We all know that water is life. Without water, there is no life. So you could also say that the source of life in the Garden of Eden comes, is found outside of the garden. And again, that is symbolically significant. For who is the source of life? And who sustains life? It is God himself. God is the source of life in the Garden of Eden because he also dwells there. In other places in Scripture, in particular in Ezekiel, chapter 28 and 31, the garden is also called the garden of God. So you see, the garden is not only the dwelling place of man, but it's the dwelling place of God. It is where God dwells with man. The Lord created the garden as an earthly tabernacle. And this brings us back to the theological truth that God placed man in the garden to establish a covenant relationship with him. This was God's ultimate purpose for man, to live in covenant fellowship with man in the garden of delight. And if you turn to the last pages of the Bible, you find the same thing illustrated there. There the Apostle John sees a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, the place where God and man will dwell together forever and ever. So in Genesis chapter 2, it's a garden. In Revelation 21 and 22, it's a city. Then the angel showed me the river. Chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here you have a picture of the city of God, and the source of life flows from outside of that city, from the throne of God, so God himself is the source of life for the city of God, and in this city is also found the tree of life. The tree of life, to which we have currently have no access it still exists, and we will be granted access to the tree of life when we dwell in the heavenly Jerusalem. In God's love for us, He has kept the tree of life hidden from us, lest we eat from it and live forever in the state of sin. But through His Son, Jesus Christ, God has made it possible for us to once again look forward to eating from the tree of life. Because when we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see this tree again. And when we do, we will live in a place in the city of God and see our Savior face to face. Because it was also revealed to John, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. 
and his name will be on their foreheads. That truly will be the city of delight. Then we will dwell in covenantal delight with God and with Jesus Christ forever. The congregation, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, may the words of Genesis 2 assure you that you are of great value to God. You are precious in His sight. And may this motivate you to also take delight in your work. May you come to see and experience your work as an act of worship. And may all this also encourage each one of us to take great delight in seeking the Lord God. And then together, look forward to the day when we will see our Savior in the face of the tree of life. Amen. Amen.